Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your emails to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. We've moved the feedback section to the front of the program. I want to make a reminder to you that if you're not sending your feedback into live at asknoahshow.com, I ask you to do that. The reason that it's so important that now more than ever that you send feedback into the show is because we're using it in a different way. Before, uh, all of the emails would come in. And they just cluttered up the inbox. We would get to as many as, as we could. But the problem with show feedback, and this is true on pretty much any podcast, for every one or two or three or four or five feedback pieces that we're able to read on the air, maybe 100 come into the email box. And so it, it becomes difficult. And over time, they, they just kind of clutter up. And so uh, Steve Evans in the community stepped up and said, hey, I have an idea of how we could do feedback a little differently. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, the way we could do it is this. Send on all the emails and I'll go through and read them each week and organize them into categories. That way we can get an idea of what the problems in the community are and make a show that was born to try to fix people's computer problems on Linux. Do that even if you can't make it into the show. So if you can, our first choice is always that you call us at 855-450-NOAH. But if that doesn't work for you, then send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll answer your questions that way. Bennett writes in, he says, uh, hi, Noah, thanks for the show and all you do for the community. I just wanted to leave a little feedback for one of your other callers that was looking to an alternative for rsync for his last backup episode. I recently started using Borg backup. You can read more at borgbackup.readthedocs.io. It has superior compression, deduplication, authenticated encrypted backup repository. It also has a prune option to remove the old backup and conform uh, a determined backup retention policy. I've only scratched the surface of this great software, but I thought it would be of real interest to all of your listeners. Tell, tell me what you think. Thanks, Bennett. And I'm absolutely going to check that out. As, as I told that caller and I would tell you, I didn't, uh, I didn't then, nor do I have any now, any real experience with things other than rsync. Rsync tends to work well enough. Uh, 855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey, Noah. Uh, my name's Ryan. Um, I appreciate you taking my call. I have a collection of VHSC and uh, mini DV tapes um, from days gone by and, and, and looking for a good strategy to get those uh, into digital um, as well as, you know, um, maybe kind of editing, editing them into scenes, if you will, you know, basically. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and then once I've done that, you know, what's the best option for maybe being able to play those? Something like, I think it's Plex I've heard of. Um, so kind of what, what's a What's a good set of tools, I guess, to get, you know, to get that done? Yeah, that, yeah, it's a great question. So uh, l let's start with this. Uh, so uh, say, say again, it's a, it is a VHS, uh, VHSC is what you had it on? Yeah. 
Okay. And, well, I've got some of those, and I've got some, uh, I think it's Mini DV. It's a kind of came after VHSC, the camcorder. Sure. So there are two different, so the, the Mini DV and VHS are going to take you two different routes. We'll start with the VHS route. So this is an analog form of, uh, of tape storage. And so the unfortunate part is the, obviously we're never going to get any more quality back out of it. Um, but every time we play the tape or every time we use the tape, um, the, the, the quality can degrade. And so we want to do that as, as, as very few times as possible. Now there are, depending on how deep you want to go, um, the what I should tell you is that the appropriate way to do that kind of transfer, if you want to get all of the quality out that you can, is you send it to a place that does that professionally. And there are certain um, there are certain VHS decks that are better than others because of the, the there's a, basically a converter that converts analog uh, video into a mini DV output so that you can capture it over a FireWire card. Um, and there are certain VHS sets that can do that and do that well. Um, and they're very expensive if you buy them on eBay. And so there's a lot of production houses that will have some of these VHS uh, recorders and they'll use them for transferring those tapes. So that's the best way to do it. Um, that said, you can certainly purchase anything that will play a VHS-C tape. And of course, there are dime a dozen on, on eBay have camcorders and VH, you know, uh, desktop VCRs and, and those kinds of things. If you purchase something like that, um, it's actually very easy to get it into your computer because converting it to uh, digit, converting an analog video source um, to uh, to digital is is very inexpensive these days, and so you can buy a converter for under twenty dollars um, that will capture. Uh, it'll give you like the little uh, the the um, RCA jacks, uh, the yellow, red, and, and white, and you'll be able to connect those um, just right. to your consumer grade cam camcorder, and you'll be able to digitize that footage. And of course. Um, you can capture it in uh, you, you in that form. You would capture it in sort of some sort of an analog video capture software. So you can use a couple different things for this. Probably the easiest one, if I'm honest with you, just to get it up and running, is OBS because OBS is going to see this device as a as a video camera, which it kind of is. It's a video capture device, and OBS indeed is designed for capturing. Um, high-quality video content and broadcasting that or recording it out. I mean, that's precisely what that software does. Now, you don't need any of the switching features of OBS, but that doesn't matter here. So that's that's one graphical way you can do it. Um, VLC has, or yeah, VLC has a way to do it um, inside of there. You could also, I would just use FFmpeg, and I'll include the FFmpeg command to just dump a video input to a uncompressed file, um, which is how I would personally go about doing that. But you, but that's certainly possible. Now for your DV, your mini DV. I have good. Well, I, I have a. I mean, I, I had worked on this several years ago with this uh, Roxio adapter, um, basically the uh, USB adapter. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering if I can use that with OBS or VLC or FFmpeg under Linux, or if uh, you would recommend a different device that will work better for me under Linux. This was kind of back in Windows when I was using this Roxio product. Sure. M my guess is that they're going to work just fine in Linux. That Roxio adapter is precisely the kind of thing I'm suggesting that you purchase. Um, the, 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 the reality okay. is like Roxio brands it and they put it into a little package with some software that does it. But the truth is if you've pulled all of that off underneath the plastic stuff, it's a cheap Chinese analog to digital video converter. And then the good news about those is the vast majority of them that I've seen populate natively in Linux. So certainly before I bought anything else, I would try it. Now, 
let me ask you this. Does does that device or do you have a computer with a DV, a mini DV fireware port, I-334 port on it? Um, I do, yeah, I actually have a card uh, that I bought a little while back that I could with a, a, a firewire um, uh, PCI card. So I could stick that in a in a computer. Yes. Okay. So uh, that is this, this is really this. So this is where the, the back in the days when Mini v, DV was out and we all went to whatever electronic store we went to to try to get those things and and our the rest of our family and friends were like you're crazy what's how is that different than any of the other cameras you have and like no this one's different here's where that comes to save us um you, you can use a uh, you can use a tool called dv grab uh, it's a command line utility and basically you plug your uh you plug your mini dv camcorder into your linux box through a firewire port and just type dv grab uh and then and and it will go out and it will start the tape at the very beginning if, if you know you run the tape first but it'll start the tape at wherever the the tape is rewound to and it will start to extract that information digitally over ones and zeros over that firewire port and turn them into video files um, so you'll get all of the exact quality that was there when you filmed it on your mini dv camera and so certainly that is the best way to do that and, and the, the, the reason i point that out is i've seen so many people that take a mini dv tape they, they went through the trouble and research to buy a good mini dv camera back in the day they recorded all of their footage digitally and then they threw it all away because they the way they ingested it into the computer was with an analog card and of course that's going to degrade some uh so the best way to do that is right over the dv port and in linux we can do that uh, with a simple command line utility called dv grab Okay, great. So DV grab would be for the mini DV, and, and in that case, I want to use the uh, FireWire card and the um, camcorder, you know, the original, you know, handy cam, whatever it was, camcorder. Correct. And with the, um, with the VHSC, um, I would probably be using, uh, I mean, I've got an old VCR, and I've got the adapter, and, you know, I've got this Roxio capture card, so probably those paired with, you know, either OBS, VLC, or FFmpeg, you said, those would all kind of do the same thing. It, that's sort of an either-or in that yes. list, right? Yep, it's whatever you like better. Okay. I would. I, I think OBS will be a simple, you install OBS, you fire it up, and you're going to see a button that says Add Source, and it's going to drop down a video source, and you're going to go, oh, there's my Roxio card, and then it's just going to show up, and that's what. And then there's a big Start Record button. Um, so it just it perfectly simulates a VCR for 2020, right? Okay, great. And then, so then once I've got the the files captured, what's the best thing to, I mean, I kind of picture like, you know, capturing the whole tape into one file or something, and then I'm going to want to split that up and edit it down somewhat nicely in terms of cutting the different, um, you know, sessions when I recorded. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, that's another great question. So, um, so first things first, again, back to the, the glory of MiniDV, it will actually pay attention. It actually records every time you press the record button and stop button. And that flags those as different quote unquote files on the mini DV tape. So what you'll find is when you use DV grab, DV grab will interpret that. Now, now I should oh, I should back up. DV grab has flags, so you can do whatever you want. If you want to pull it in all as one big file, you can do that. But I I believe the default actually the default mini DV grab it will split it up into a certain chunk of data and then make the next file. Um, but you can tell it DV grab just spit out one file after the other based on where I hit record and pause. And I, and I think if there's pause in between the tape, it will do that automatically. Um, when it comes to 
analog though, you, you're right. You're going to capture it in one big long file and then you're going to have to chop it up. And in either event, regardless of, of how you arrive there, uh, the software I'd use for that would be AvidMux. And uh, I would use AvidMux for a couple of reasons. If you wanted to get fancy and you wanted to start doing some editing, I would use Caden Live because it's going to be your traditional non-linear vi non-linear video editor. And, and frankly, lately, Caden Live looks a heck of a lot like Adobe Premiere. To the point that I don't really see the uh, I don't really see the the, the 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 draw to it to Adobe products when the workflow is so similar um, and Caden Live is free so I'd start there if you're going to do any real editing I I I'd do that but the the great thing about AvidMux it doesn't have to re-encode the entire file. And so when you're just splitting a file up, it marks that changes and then just saves a new copy of the file cut to, cut to the length that you want to cut. And that's actually exactly what I do at the end of every week with Ask Noah. Okay. So AvidMux or Caden Lied, but AvidMux is maybe a little easier, sounds like. A little easier and a little faster. You won't have to wait, you know, if you don't have a one-hour movie, you'd wait one hour while it renders somewhere in that neighborhood. While it renders out with AvidMux, it'll oh. take five seconds, and the movie will just be cut. Okay, well, that's good to know. I'm making notes here as uh, we go along, because people, uh, people uh, you know, if I don't, don't include it in the show notes, then it doesn't do anybody else any good. So, um, But AvidMux for the, for, the, for the video editing software. Then do you have a way to watch it? Did, was, that, was that in the first part of your question? That was the last part, yeah. So, so once I've got everything, um, I mean, I've kind, of, I've heard of Plex. I think that's what uh, I think that's right. That I, that would might allow me to set up like a have everything set up on a server and then play them back through you know TVs in the house. What is that right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So there's a number of different ways you can do that. So the, again, the easiest way to probably set that up is actually going to be through something like Cody. Um, the reason that Kodi is the easiest to set up is because it doesn't require a server component. You, If you have a Windows machine, you can right-click on a folder, click on sharing, share that folder out, and then you can go to Kodi, browse that folder, and just play any of the video files that are in that folder. That's all that's required. You can do the same thing on Linux, right? Right-click on the folder, share it out as a Samba share. It gets a little bit more complicated if you don't have the packages you need for Samba. But, you know, in production, in, in, in real life, where you would actually skate to would be to purchase some sort of a NAS. And that can be anything from a $200 Netgear deal that you buy at Best Buy, all the way up to something like a FreeNAS Mini. Um, but whatever you choose, as long as it supports Samba sharing, you'll be able to access that with a Kodi device. Now, as you scale up and you start saying, okay, well, that's great. Now I can watch all my home videos, but I also want to be able to rip DVDs and I also want to be able to rip TVs. TV shows, all of those are going to be handled by Kodi as well. Where you would want to move away from Kodi and into something like Plex, or I would personally recommend Jellyfin, uh, I would say you move that direction when you reach a point in, in, in where you want to be playing on multiple devices and you want it to do things like save positions and you want multiple people to have accounts and track all of that stuff. That's where Jellyfin and, and Plex uh, really shine. Um, for just home videos, it's not going to be in any IMDb, ca uh, you know, um, scrape TV scraping thing anyway. The movies aren't going to have title bits that you can show up there anyway. So all that fancy stuff that we would ordinarily see in Plex and, and Jellyfin, a lot of them aren't going to work for home movies. And the other thing is, the, it's nice sometimes when you just download a video off the internet off of YouTube or a friend sends you something to just drop it in a folder and pull it up and watch that on the TV. So for all of those reasons, I'm a big fan of Kodi. Um, the, the easiest way to get started with Kodi is you can just... Um, grab a Raspberry Pi and flash something like Open Elect to it. If you have a bit bigger of a budget, you could purchase something like an NVIDIA Shield, go into the Play Store, or actually any Android TV device, and go into the Play Store and install Kodi. It'd work on an Apple TV. 
Um, there are people that can flash it to uh, fire sticks, although you want to be careful with that a little bit. There's a little, there's an e-fuse, and if it, some of them, if you burn the e-fuse, then it shuts the, the fire stick down. And so uh, I'd be a little cautious there. But, but yeah, I would, I would start with Cody, and if it doesn't meet your needs, I would go to Jellyfin or Plex. In the case of Cody, would you actually just be plugging a device into your TV as opposed to, like I was thinking with the, with the, we have Roku and um, with something that were, that where there would actually be an app available that would connect to, uh, to my network and play it that way? Yeah, to, the last I checked, you weren't able to install Kodi on Roku, but you could install Plex on Roku. So if you already have the devices to play on your TV, and you could probably install Jellyfin on, on Roku too. If you already have the devices uh, connected to your TV, then I, I, I take it back. I probably would go with something like Plex um, if the, if, or Jellyfin, depending on what's available for the Roku. Um, because then you won't have to replace all of those ends. But when you do go to replace all of those ends, you might consider looking at some of the other projects that are out there and saying which device supports all of them so that I could have, I could run Jellyfin, Plex, or Cody, uh, something like the NVIDIA Shield. Okay, great. So that gives me a lot of uh, good, a lot of good research to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. All right, thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. 1-855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at Show. Dot com. Make your verse heard. Become a part of the program. Our second email tonight comes in from, we don't have a name from this one. It says, hi, Noah. Oh, Dennis. Dennis writes in and says, hi, Noah. I heard you mention a while back that your inside security cameras aren't exposed to the internet, but instead you're remote into a local machine. Can you help me explain how that process works? Thanks. Um, yeah, if I said that, obviously I misspoke because I could not remote into a machine that's not connected to the internet, right? But so the way that my cameras are set up in my house, I do have two systems. I have an indoor system and an outdoor system. The outdoor system is what I consider the public cameras. They're cameras that I intend people to, everybody should expect to be on camera and be recorded because you're traping around the outsides of my house. Uh, the indoor cameras are a little bit different, right? And people have an expectation of privacy. My family has an expectation of privacy. And so those cameras are useful from the standpoint of being able to say who who's in the living room or did somebody let the dog out or whatever without having to actually go and you know walk around the house. You can kind of keep an eye on what's going on. But those are only accessible from directly wired, hardwired machines um, that are connected to a completely separate standalone network. Now, as to how I view them when I leave the house, when I leave the house, uh, well, so, so let's start. On a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you can't view them because they're separated completely. Uh, when we as a family leave the house, not just when I leave for, for work, but when we as a family leave the house, we make a conscious decision that we're thereby no longer uh, making the house a private space, but a public one because we're going to have house sitters. And if something breaks, I'm going to have to have somebody go over there and, and you know work on the plumbing. And of course, I have cameras all over my house. And the reason I have cameras all over my house is I can keep an eye on what's going on. Uh, and when I'm not able to do that, uh, when I'm not at the house, then there's no need for privacy. And so those cameras get disconnected uh, from the private switch and get plugged into the public switch. And because of the way that the IPs are set up, they just appear and uh, then start working on the public NVR because there's a separate one for, for both networks. Um, I want to be clear, though, the, the NVR, the monitoring station, basically anything with storage on the private network is never connected to the Internet. Never is, never will be. Our fourth email comes in tonight from Josh. Josh writes in and says, hey, Noah, I really love the show. I never miss an episode, but I thought you might be able to help me with this issue. I have a Lenovo T460. I had Ubuntu and Kubuntu installed on it, and I always have trouble with the touchpad. It seems it randomly jumps around. The multi-touch and right-click never work reliably. Have you ever heard of this before? Is there anything I can do to fix it? Thanks, Josh. So I have not had that issue specifically on a T460, but I have had that issue on my X1 Carbon. 
I've also experienced that issue on, or I should say my wife has also experienced that issue on her Dell XPS. My dad has experienced that issue on his Dell XPS. And in all three circumstances, I was able to resolve the issue by simply installing some synaptic drivers that weren't there. Um, and so I have the command included for you in the show notes. I don't know for sure if that's your problem, but that was precisely the kind of behavior that we were having. And basically the synaptic drivers allow the synaptic tracks trackpad to pick up on, on, on the touch inputs. Our pick of the week is HumHub, HumHub.com. Uh, you can read more at GitHub.com slash HumHub, uh, and you have to say it like that. Uh, it's group and team communication software for the 21st century, but this is done the open source way. Team communication, this is essentially a open social network, but it's a self-hosted, non-federated social network and it's extremely well polished. This thing looks really fantastic. And as I as I kind of went through here and I kind of looked sideways for a second, I thought, why would a business want to host their own social network? And then it kind of dawns on me, really, posting, commenting, following, liking, sharing, those are powerful communication tools. Those are powerful community building tools. They're powerful relationship building tools. And it is really great way to have people interact in general. The problem is all of these Platforms are primarily controlled by companies that don't necessarily share your company's interest. So if you wanted to offer your employees that kind of tool, but wanted it all self-hosted, HumHub is the answer. Uh, again, my, my, the, the biggest thing to me, if this thing supported Federation, I'd have one up already. But the fact that it doesn't, the, the interface is that good, but it doesn't support Federation. And so I can understand how that would be nice if you're working inside of a corporate environment and you have no interest in federating at the same time, why not have that as an option and then just be able to turn it off or limit the federation? That would really be kind of ideal, right? And it's kind of how Matrix does it. In any way, uh, in any event, if you'd like to learn more, head over to humhub.com. Since the news broke last week about Red Hat and IBM killing CentOS Linux and replacing it with CentOS Stream, uh, short recap, you can hear more in last week's episode. The short recap is that they decided CentOS uh, Linux is going to be no longer and they are going to replace it with CentOS Stream. It will no longer be a binarily compatible version of Red Hat. Instead, it's going to be slightly ahead of Red Hat, just uh, like a 0.1 release or so ahead. And the idea being that they can kind of, that'll be the community side and people can kind of track the changes and then it'll go into Red Hat proper. Um, needless to say, that didn't go over so well with the community who many of which, to include myself, use CentOS on a day-to-day -day basis as a staging ground for Red Hat. And the thing that is so frustrating to myself and many other people that do this for a living is we go to our customers day in and day out and tell them that the reason Red Hat is worth paying the money that they charge for their product is because it's all open source. And so we can do all of this without them ever having to write a check. And when they need, when they've made the decision based on their own business interests to pursue a relationship with Red Hat and purchase a product, they can do that. And there's no pressure to do that because the source code is all up in the open. So Red Hat always has to deliver to their customer by providing amazing customer support, or at least that's been the line. So last week they changed all of that. And now that we don't have that product to offer uh, clients anymore. And I, you know, again, go listen to last week's episode because I think it's a fine balance between entitlement and delivering up to the word that you gave to the community and the agreement that was put in place. Um, 
Red Hat fundamentally changed that. And so in response, CentOS co-founder Greg Kutzner, one of the community members who isn't very happy about Red Hat's decision to shut down CentOS, he issued a, a press statement and he said that he was shocked with the rest of the community to learn the news from Red Hat and that when he started CentOS 16 years ago, he never imagined the incredible reach that it would have around the world or the individuals and companies that rely on it. In response to this unexpected shift, he said he's proud to announce the launch of a new project, Rocky Linux. Rocky Linux is basically a CentOS, uh, it is a CentOS, it's the continuation of the CentOS product. Um, this is literally hours after Red Hat makes their announcement of what they're going to do that Greg comes back out and says, okay, listen, I, this is not, I didn't, this is not why I started the CentOS project. I was, this, this isn't what I was aiming to do. This wasn't what the community expected. And so the guy immediately jumps back into the community or really just continues to continue the discussion in the community that he's already in. A bunch of people uh, reach out to him and jump into, by the way, there's a, there's a matrix room. It is pound rocky linux colon matrix.org pound rocky linux matrix.org i will throw that in our on air chat so if you go to geeklab.ninja you can scroll scroll up and you there should be just a little pill that you can click on and join that that chat room but then you can actually watch and participate this discussion as it unfolds and as rocky linux takes the stage because then you can be aware of what's coming down your pipeline rather than getting bushwhacked from the side out of, out of left field which is kind of what last week felt like now, it's, it'll be interesting to see if there are any pricing changes to the Red Hat product family. I mean, this is a decisive move on Red Hat's part to say, uh, this is not the product we're going to offer anymore. Instead, here's the product we're willing to offer for free. And it was a very different product than, than, than what we were given. Um, and so in response, the community has said, this is, this is what we're going to do. And Rocky Linux is not the only one. Cloud Linux, yet another alternative and a rel fork, uh, came out and said, hey, we are already main maintaining Cloud Linux OS, and we plan to release a free open-sourced community-driven one-to-one binary compatible fork of RHEL 8 in Q1 of 2021. We'll create separate, totally free OS that is fully binarily compatible with RHEL 8 and future versions. We will sponsor the development and maintenance of a, such an OS, and we'll work with establishing the community around an OS with the given, with the given board of members from the community. Cloud Linux also proclaimed that it would create a new CentOS Linux, uh, CentOS clone Linux, L-E-N-I-X, and Cloud Linux will be putting over a million dollars behind it. Um, now, their answer, and then they were asked, why, why are you doing this? And their CEO said, quote, Red Hat's announcement left users looking for an alternative with all that CentOS provides without the disruption of having to move to an alternative distribution. We promise to dedicate resources required to fund Project Linux that will ensure the impartiality for a not-for-profit community initiative. Cloud Linux already has the assets, infrastructure, and experience to carry out the mission, and we promise to be open about the process about developing Project Linux. This is really fantastic. This is really fantastic. This is exactly what we need. And IBM, are you listening? Are you listening? Because your $34 billion investment in Red Hat and you just did the dumb. But don't worry, IBM, because Red Hat's commitment to open source made sure that the community was able to save you from your mistake. In less than seven days. It took less than seven days from the time that Red Hat made this announcement till the time that not one, but two different organizations, probably more, two different organizations have stepped up and said, we're going to fix this. We are going to make sure that there is a community-supported version of Enterprise Linux. And I have to tell you something. I had the opportunity to dig in a little bit to the actual numbers 
as it relates to Linux distributions. And it's terrifying. Ubuntu has 47.5, I shouldn't say terrifying, it's just interesting, 47.5% of the market share goes to Ubuntu. So almost half of all the servers are running with Ubuntu on it. Under that, CentOS, 18.8%. 18.8%. That's what Red Hat thought was the big threat. That's what people are stealing their software and using, uh, using it for free, right? 18%. We had, they could double that and you wouldn't touch what Ubuntu was at. Actual Red Hat proper, less than 1.8%. Now, to be fair, this is, now to be fair, this is on the cloud, right? This is primarily on the internet and these statistics come from cloud providers. And so this doesn't necessarily account for, you know, the server farms that exist inside of uh, many companies. But the point is, Canonical is decidedly going to gain market share in the server space from this. Uh, OpenSUSE is another organization that is going to decidedly gain market space for this. If you're looking for other possible alternatives to Red Hat, you might consider OpenSUSE Leap. OpenSUSE Leap might be an option. The minor releases like OpenSUSE Leap 15.2 sometimes get compared to major releases, but the minor releases are essentially updates that people can choose rather than having those updates forced. Major releases of Leap, on the other hand, are are designed around long periods of maintenance and security updates. And so the release cycle has additional overlap um, that you wouldn't get with those minor releases. And those major releases are coming roughly every three to four years. Minor releases usually come once a year. And so if you're looking for something that's going to have a lot of the same feel of Red Hat, I've, I've, I've accidentally or maybe not so accidentally referred to OpenSUSE as uh, baby Red Hat. And let me tell you something else. They so they follow SUSE Enterprise, it, but it, when I go to LinuxDelta.com, one of the reasons that we put that site up is because I wanted to be able to sort reviews based on the number of reviews. How many people use a given project? It doesn't so matter matter so much to me what everybody is talking about today. I want to know over the long haul. What projects do people use, consistently use, consistently like, and of those, what, ha what are the most amount of users? And you know what that distribution is? Because it's not Ubuntu, it's OpenSUSE. OpenSUSE. OpenSUSE has more users very happy with their product than Ubuntu has with, than Ubuntu users are represented on LinuxTelta.com. That's interesting to me that, that if you're just looking at server deployment, Everybody chooses one thing, but when you're actually living on a platform and you go to a resource and say, I'm, this is what this is good for, for desktop use, OpenSUSE, more people are happy with that. And right now in the market, there is a time when, when if you were going to make a change and you were on Red Hat, now is probably the time that you're considering that, right? This is uh, last story of the day. This is kind of a sad one. Zereason is closing. Uh, they posted a letter on their site. Uh, if you're not familiar, Zereason is a hardware manufacturer of, uh, of Linux-specific laptops. And they wrote, Dear people and love supplied, supported, and possibly disappointed over the years and our customers. As many have noticed, our product line has been getting smaller. Tech support has been slowing down to a crawl. And unfortunately, the pandemic has been the final knockout blow. It was our little town. It hit our t little town so hard, and we've simply not been able to recover from it. And so, as of Tuesday, eleven twenty-four, five uh, five p.m. Eastern, there's a reason is no longer in business. If you have a computer from us, we hope it gives you a long, solid lifespan. If it does not, we would like uh, and you would like warranty work done. We regret to tell you that there are no employees who can answer questions, do repairs. Employees 
usually want to be paid. And without sales, there is no income to pay them. Thankfully, there are a few places that you can turn to for support. And then they list all of the community resources that exist. And so I, I am consistently disappointed anytime somebody, uh, anytime a, a business like there's a reason goes out of business because I, I really believe that we need competition in that space in order to make good Linux laptops. one 450 the email live at asknoahshow.com. Jim calls from San Francisco. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Hey, uh, I wanted to ask you about hosting. Specifically, I've been hosting community service, uh, open source projects for local hacker spaces for the last three years. Okay. And at this point, uh, I've been asked by some of the open source projects to help host like demo instances and things like that as well. Okay. And so I was curious, I have access to like four different servers now in different geographic locations. What would be the best way to learn how to manage something like that? Because it's over my head. Managing the one server has somehow worked for the last three years straight, but I'm not really sure on what to learn next. I've learned uh, Docker, Nginx running Debian Buster, um, do I, should I learn, look into Kubernetes or something? I'm worried see, about a single point of failure and things like that. But I got you. I got, so how, where do you go next? Once you've learned how to administrate one server, how do you scale that operation up, basically, is what you're saying? Exactly. Okay, yeah, for sure. So the, um, the first thing I would do, I would. I would focus on containers. Everybody I have interviewed in the last, in the last two years, um, no matter what topic I, I ask them about, everything from virtualization to the future of servers to software as a service, all those things, the one thing that they all have in common, everything, everything is moving to containers. Easier to manage resources. Uh, they're, they're more efficient. It's easier to scale. All, all of the things, all of the reasons point to containers. Um, so where would you start? Yes, I would start with something like Docker. I would start with Docker because it, it it's it's one of the most well known container formats out there. Um, but I would experience I would experiment with you know with um, I, for, I forget the uh, well any OCI compliant uh, c container should technically work. And so from that standpoint, you should technically be able to start with 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 Podman and Scopio. Um, I can't recommend that because sometimes it doesn't work. And in Red Hat's defense, it doesn't work not because they're not uh, they're not compliant. It's because the other Docker images aren't compliant. But when you're start getting started, that's not the kind of stuff you want to be worried about. So I would start with with a good solid Docker course. Um, and there's plenty of free ones online. Um, and and start playing with Docker's. Once you kind of get your head wrapped around containers, the very next thing I would go or I would learn is Ansible. And the reason that I would learn Ansible is because it allows you to change a little bit the way that you think about administrating servers from what do I have to do to this machine to what configuration do I want this machine to be in? And Ansible allows you to kind of think in that big picture way. And that's how that's when you really can start to scale uh, horizontally. Um, so as far as actual as far as actual technologies, you 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 kind of drove by Nginx, but I wouldn't. I would Nginx is 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 another one. I would I would spend some time in and 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 dig into. Almost every project that we do, if it at some point or another, Nginx is involved. Um, that's primarily because a lot of things are web facing, and so Nginx is kind of the heart of that, or at least the director of that. And so having your head wrapped around Nginx before you ever get to things like containers and Ansible and all of that, um, I found it much easier to wrap my head around it when it was just one box, one IP address, one firewall to deal with, and then, oh, now how does Nginx work? Rather than, oh, I'm passing that traffic into an Nginx instance, but that's sitting behind a container and there's, you know, container networking involved and those kinds of things. Does that sufficiently confuse you enough to unconfuse you? Yeah, 
Well, so that leaves me at exactly where I'm at, which is I have three years of working with containers, things running in Docker. There's at least one service running in Podman, which I don't have experience with, but we have Minio running in Podman, and everything's running behind Nginx. Total, there's probably 20 services, and somehow it's continued running, but that's where we're at right now. Okay. So I'm wondering how to scale that up beyond Docker and Nginx on a single machine. Yep, you're definitely at the Ansible step. So now now we have everything working. Now we have everything containerized. So everything is portable, and it can be very reliable because we can move it anywhere. It doesn't matter what happens to the hardware anymore because all of your stuff just exists in the container above the hardware. So that's a good place to be. Um, so yeah, next step is going to be Ansible. And Ansible is going to, once you... Once you wrap your head around or, or as you wrap your head around Ansible and you start to back up and say, OK, so I want Ansible to 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 command this machine to be this thing. And when that fails or when something happens, then I want Ansible to do this. Um, and and you that's you can start to get your that's where you really do. That's where you really can begin to scale. But the, the thing is, uh, until you start to answer some of those questions about like, what does traffic look like? Right. If you came to me and said, hey, I have I've so I've, I've done that now. I've got Ansible. Everything is deployed by Ansible. Um, now the problem is I have these four different data centers and they all have different they all have different servers and they're all running redundant stuff. Uh, you know now how do I load balance? And then we start looking into load balancers and, and network traffic and you separate out the database from the so that the storage is separate from. And there's I could spend a whole episode and talk about how you could scale that right. Um, but that's the next step is once you have the system running now it's time to automate. Can you automate the deployment of it so that it takes less time to recover from a catastrophic failure? How long does it take you to go from a bare metal box to what you have right now? And how can you reduce the amount of time that takes and complexity? All right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, I'll get a, uh my Ansible skills up to date. I have been asked to look into that. I just didn't want to uh, run any additional services until we start figuring out how to deal with failover. So thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Uh, and, and, and as you get into, as you, as you get into Ansible and as you start to look into containers and failover, um, I, I, Again, that's where I really think uh, that's where I really think your work for what you have learned in Nginx and, and containers and stuff is, is going to go a long way. Um, it just there's 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 something cool about when I when I go to our our developers and I say hey or our our administrators and I say hey we want to move all of these we we're moving all of our web servers that we hold for other clients and I said I want to move them over here we're going to move them to the data center and when they come back and say yeah it's really not a problem because we just move it from this uh from this Docker host, Podman host to that Podman host and all of the infrastructure just picks up and overnight moves over to this other place. I was I was even demonstrated the ability to shut a, a container down, like mid-running, move it to an entirely different machine and bring it back up. It's just absolutely fantastic, the, the, the power that's there. And uh, unfortunately, I just don't have enough of the hands-on time to... Uh, to tell you a lot of the details, I, I deal with it for, from a little bit bigger, bigger picture of a view, but um, Ansible and automation, definitely the, the, the next step to go. So our main segment this year or this week is gifts for that tech geek around you. Now, I want to take a moment just to kind of talk about why we do uh, this segment. Giving should be one of those things that you do because you have decided in your heart that you want to be generous to somebody else, that you've decided uh, that you want to give. And for me personally, that means giving in the name of Jesus, but I, regardless of what your religious beliefs are, if you celebrate Christmas at all, it's undeniable that if you just walk around your city, wherever you are in the world, 
there is probably more generosity going on this time of year than any other time of year. And so on the Ask Noah's show, we try to take some time every year to put a little bit of love, extra attention into gifts for your geek because geeks can be hard to shop for. And by the way, if there ever was a year to go a little bit beyond, go a little bit above, man, the year of COVID, that'd be a great year to show someone some extra love. So the idea here is we're going to try and help you and your families answer the same question that everyone with a geek in their life asks, what do I get the geek in my life for Christmas? And here's the thing. If you want just generic tech geeks, anybody can just go to Amazon, sort by number of reviews, and then you can pick something out there based on popularity. But if you want out-of-the-box ideas that might surprise your geek, then you have to come with me and see how far down the rabbit hole goes. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Um, sometimes brain power and creativity will get you a long way. If you do have a bigger wallet, I do have some stuff that your geek probably didn't know he or she needs. But if nothing else, I can promise you that we're going to start cheap and work our way up. So without further ado, number five on the list, $9.99, Amazon.com, stainless steel, small opening pill capsule pendant. Just half the audience is like, what? Don't worry if your geek's not on meds. It has nothing to do with that. So stay with me. I'm going to tread on your attention span a little bit, but I promise we're going to get somewhere. We're all going to learn something. So proper password management dictates that you use a separate password for every account. And so we should be using 15 characters or more for passwords, preferably the entire key space, which also includes, uh, which should be really random to minimize our attack vector. The problem is it's just not really practical to remember passwords like that. So now we get to a password manager. Now, a password manager like Bitwarden. Bitwarden will indeed generate separate passwords for every site. And we can customize the way that it generates passwords so that it stores 15 or 25 character password sites and has the whole key space and the whole nine yards. Additionally, it'll store usernames, the sites itself, even notes. And so now we have a great way to store the passwords. But now we have to secure the password manager. Actually, we really, really have to secure the password manager because in addition to the master keychain to the joint, this thing has a directory listing of all the sites you saved and your username. So now we get to picking the password for our password manager and who here wants to remember a 15 character password or more. And by the way, then you have to rotate it every once in a while. Now, the NIST standard still says that they recommend an eight character minimum password set by a human or six character minimum password set by a machine. And that's fine if you're just using this password to access an account. As long as the password is rotated frequently, that should work. The problem is it's different when you start talking about encryption. When you start talking about encryption, now we have to start considering an offline attack. Perhaps the, perhaps the attacker may have access to that key and would be able to brute force that password over a longer period of time without being discovered or flagged or the password being rotated. In this instance, that six to eight character password definitely isn't going to be strong enough. So now we want a stronger password. Really, we want it as long as we can get it. The problem is that becomes hard to remember. So NIST goes on to say that they're actually now encouraging users to create long passwords with a maximum length, get this, a maximum length of 64 characters or higher. How you can have a maximum length of 64 characters or higher, uh, you go figure that one out. But the other thing that they say is that all applications should permit printable characters listed within ASCII, including spaces and should even accept Unicode characters like emojis. There are other conclusions that they reach, like Overly complex passwords can lead to poor user password behavior. That means that we make them change their password so often that they just get so sick of it 
and they can never remember anything that they just start coming up with the, the, the most brain dead, simple things that they can come up with just so that they can log into their account. What's the end result? Users wind up with weaker passwords. So how do we secure our really important big vault that with really important stuff with it, with one password that meets or exceeds all these NIST standards and still allows us to remember it? Passphrases. Passphrases. Passphrases are the answer. Now, I can't tell you much about the math on passphrases. It's readily available on Wikipedia if you want to go read about it. But the practical translation of the math boils down to this. Even though the words are found in a dictionary and that makes those passwords more vulnerable to a dictionary attack, turns out if you use enough random passwords and make it long enough, it requires so much computing power that it largely becomes irrelevant in most cases. And this is where the story of our little $9.99 pill from Amazon comes in. You generate your 7 to 14 word passphrase that you come up with, and you write it down as small as you can on a, on a small little piece of paper. You roll that little piece of paper up, put it inside of the little waterproof pill capsule that comes with an included little necklace, and you wear it around your neck until you've memorized the password, at which point you burn the little piece of paper, and now there's no record of that password, and so there's nothing for an attacker to use. If for any reason you have to roll your pass uh, your passphrase, you repeat the process. And uh, I have, you know, for nine bucks and 99 cents, you can eliminate a lot of the a lot of the headaches. Everything else can be automated. And the single key to the vault is something that you keep on your person and you uh, you never let anyone get to. Number four on the list, the Aventry TC417 Bluetooth transmitter and receiver. Now, this is a device that like $35 Amazon.com. This is a device that allows you to connect a wired stereo source or a wired stereo destination with either a digital or analog source or destination. So if you think about it, the way it works is this. You can pair this device with a really nice set of Bluetooth headphones, and then you can connect this device to your TV. And the end result is I can sit in bed and watch the TV with really great sound coming through my nice headphones, and my wife can't hear anything, even though my TV doesn't support Bluetooth. And because this box is really small, just a little bit of 3M double-sided tape allows me to affix it to the back of the TV, and you don't even see that it's there. But wait, there's more. It gets better. You can also put this thing into a receiver mode, and you can connect it to your stereo along with your analog or digital cable, and you can play music out of this device and that uh, over Bluetooth. And so now you maybe you have a great stereo, um, but it doesn't have Bluetooth or it doesn't have the ability to connect modern electronics or it's in a place that you can't get wires too easily. And so you can't connect it to something like a whole house audio system or a Raspberry Pi or whatever it is you want to connect it to. Maybe you're one of those people like me that thinks that the, the, the stereo system that you could buy at a thrift store for $25 sounds better than any of the junk that you could buy at the department store nowadays. And so you brought that home. But again, Thrift store stereo for $25 doesn't come with Bluetooth, can't stream Spotify, podcasts, all the things. So you can breathe new life into it with the Aventry TC417. And uh, for 38 bucks, you can stream Spotify, you can stream podcasts, you can stream your favorite radio station. Maybe you want to just stream your own local music to it. You can do all of those things. Uh, but you need the ability to connect wirelessly. This is a way to do it. So the Aventry TC417, again, all these products I'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Gift number three, the YubiKey. Uh, we've talked about them in various forms on the show multiple times. There's a there's a plethora of episodes on them. Um, but the 30,000-foot view is if you want to get started with a YubiKey, you can't go wrong getting one of these for Christmas for your tech nerd. Even if they already have one, they can always use a second. And the truth is these things have literally changed my life. So 
To get started, you can use it in OTP mode or one-time password mode. And in this mode, um, basically the YubiKey generates a new but predictable password on Yubico's server. And that password, um, really it just is a character string, but that can be used as a two-factor authentication device to log into sites like Google and Bitwarden and Gandhi and so on and so forth. And so you can secure your account uh, with anyone that participates in the FIDO standard with this device for two-factor authentication. Now, the FIDO2 standard, excuse me, that's FIDO1. FIDO2 standard is web off end. So this is the new standard. It's basically how we would have done two-factor authentication if we had thought about it from the get-go and wanted to design devices from the get-go. Um, the idea here is that we want something you have and something you know. Something you have is the YubiKey, it's a little hardware device, something you know is your password. But this allows you to log, users to log into their internet accounts using devices to authenticate into those accounts. And so the FIDO2 standard, of course, it's much larger than YubiKey in general because it permits you to log in via biometrics, mobile devices, and of course anything that conforms to the FIDO standard, which the YubiKeys do. Um, the advantage here is that the security is much, much higher than using just plain passwords. Regardless of which mode you find works best for you, though, um, having two-factor authentication is going to drastically increase your security, particularly if you use it with something like your password manager. Um, in addition to a nice secure password to secure Bitwarden, now you have something where you know your accounts are secure because you have something that you know. And I want to be clear, I don't get any money from these companies. Nobody's paying me to say this. Uh, that the, uh, the YubiKey and Bitwarden work great together because I have a YubiKey and I think Bitwarden is the best password manager and so I've used them both together and so I recommend that you do too. And that's how I use my, that's how I've secured my passwords. Now I've tried other keys. I've tried the Nitro key. I've tried the Trezor. I've tried uh, only key. I've tried a bunch of other keys. And to be honest with you, all of them do something really, really, really well. The screen on the Trezor, for example, the way that thing shifts the pin around each time you type the pin uh, so people can't like buddy watch you to figure out what your pin is, absolutely ingenious. And that's something that like, n I've ne never seen something like that before, but it actually changes the layout of the pin pad every time you go to authenticate the device. Very cool. But at the end of the day, all of the things that you get for the price point that you get it at, it's just hard to beat the YubiKey. It just is. It's the best bang for your buck. So you got a couple of choices. You have the new YubiKey 5 Nano Series, which is 50 bucks, or the NFC Nano Key, which is 45 bucks. The NFC version basically looks like a little key that goes on a, uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a key ring. The Nano version actually goes in and sits into the uh, USB port. Now, AT Commander points out uh, solo keys. That is actually one I have not uh, played with, so I'll have to check out the solo keys. Uh, I've, I've seen the only key, I've seen... Uh, seen the Trezor, seen a bunch of them, haven't seen that one. Um, but the primary of, uh, advantage of how I use these, in addition to the one-time password or the FIDO2, which I think is tremendously cool and anybody can take advantage of that, specifically as a system administrator, I have to have this device to function, particularly owning an IT company. And the 30,000-foot view from, of that is this. It serves as a PKCS11 provider, and that allows us to use it to authenticate with SSH. And the advantage to doing SSH this way is, probably most importantly, the server side stays exactly the same. So we don't need to make any special changes to the server. We don't have to install any special software. We don't have to get any special permissions from the client or the boss or whoever, fill out any special paperwork. It's just, this is the key that's stored on a write-only device. The YubiKey is protected by a PID. The YubiKey spits out a public SSH key, which can then be pasted into .ssh slash authorized hosts, just like you would on any other server. On the client side, the only thing you have to do 
is add a single line to slash Etsy slash SSH underscore config and specify that you want it to look at a PKCS11 provider. And of course, you have to have OpenSC installed for that to happen. But if you have those two things, and it's probably in your repo, when you go to log SSH into a server, as long as your YubiKey is connected, it prompts you for a pin. You type in your pin, you press enter, you touch it to prove that you're sitting at the computer so that somebody who's remoted into your computer can't use your YubiKey without your knowledge. And Bob's your uncle, you're in the server. Now, I've heard of people, and this, man, I've heard of people in the community writing the same SSH key to multiple devices for backup and YubiKey. And they've taken my guide, but they've modified it and said, well, you can, you can do this and then you can make a, a duplicate SSH key for backup. And that's fine, I guess, but the real power in these devices comes from the fact that there's only one copy of the private key and it's protected by the YubiKey. If the key ever becomes compromised in a, in a case where you had two of them, they would both be compromised, but you wouldn't necessarily know that. And so I, I think it's a bad idea, and I don't do that. We don't do that at AltaSpeed. Each key is uniquely generated, assigned to an employee. When that employee quits, they return the key. Because we know that the key couldn't have been duplicated, it's simply assigned to the next employee, and we move on. We don't have to change anything in the servers. We don't have to change anything in the logs, nothing. Employee, the, the, the contractors or contract clients that we have that require us to update the, the authorized user list, we have to do that. But as far as actually making change to the server, nothing happens. And if the employee doesn't return the YubiKey, then, but only then, we have to go through and scrub all the SSH keys out of the server or paperwork, contract clients, that sort of thing, unless they have, con unless the client has central management, in which case then that, even that's easy. Gift idea number two, $139, Amazon.com, the SMSL 8018 Hi-Fi Audio Stereo Amplifier. So let's say you have a new computer or a new game system, or you just want a good stereo to listen to some music. You don't want to spend a million bucks. You could go the route of a soundbar, but the soundbar doesn't really allow you to pick out different speakers and you can't really position them very well. And so this is a high quality 160 watt stereo amplifier that delivers very good audio quality. It comes with a 3.5 millimeter aux cable that you can use. It can run as a USB interface connected to your computer. So you can connect uh, to a stereo system that way or run power some speakers that way and run it off your computer. It has an optical in if you want to feed it optical data. Uh, you also can pair it with Bluetooth. And so you can stream Spotify podcasts, all those kinds of things. And again, only $139. Now you can pair this with any set of speakers. What I did for my kids was I paired them with a pair of Poke Audio in-ceiling speakers in their bedroom. And I ran the cables up to the little amp that sits on their desk. They flip a switch and audio that comes usually from the rest of the whole house audio system on Volumio is, 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 is stopped. And instead the source of this little amp is selected and then they can plug in their laptop or their whatever and, uh, and, and play audio right in their room. So it is the SMSL8018 Hi-Fi Audio Stereo Amplifier. It is $139. You can pick one up at Amazon.com. And my last gift, number one, at $279. Here's the truth. Anytime you start getting over $100, bucks, i am hesitant to make a recommendation for any geek because we're all so different. We, only we know what we want. But I will, if, you, if you're in a bind and you're looking for a gift in this price range, I promise you, you probably won't go wrong with this. I have tried messenger bags, shoulder bags. I've tried backpacks. But the reality is when you have to take a tank of stuff with you everywhere you go because you work out of that tank because you don't have an office because that's the nature of your job, you start ruling backpacks out pretty quick. And I've seen guys burn through cheap backpacks. I knew one guy that he bought his bag at Costco because they had a lifetime guarantee on it. Now, the backpack never lasted him any more than a, a, a few months, but he didn't care because he constantly kept 
replacing it and they kept giving a new one and that worked just fine. Kind of the other way around, I'd rather just buy something once and have it for a very long time. The build quality on this thing is fantastic as you better expect it to be for 300 bucks. But the backpack itself is light, which is good because that means there's plenty of space and I take a lot of stuff in there. I can easily fit two laptops, both my personal and my work laptop in their compact laptop compartment. They've designed it as one big laptop and one smaller one. Now I have an X1 and a T480, so if you have a thicker laptop, you might only get one in there, but it does have two pockets. They also have a dedicated power supply pocket, which I really like, Type-C pocket. Uh, two pockets on the side for important drives, work phones, stuff like that when you, that you're frequently using, and, and then a little front pocket that you can use when you need to pull out boarding passes and stuff like that. Then the center, and this is what makes this backpack rather unique, it's a tank portion, and it's a very large opening that you can put whatever you want in there. So I can fit all of my broadcast equipment in there. I can fit all of my tools in there. Uh, and in addition to that, they have on the backside a little strap that allows you to attach it to a rolling suitcase. So it takes all the weight off your back. Anyway, for traveling, nothing better. It uh, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Um, it is the best backpack I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> 